Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 24th, 2022. As we speak, the world's most powerful meet people are meeting in um, Davos, in, uh, in Switzerland to figure out the world. The New York Times leads with Davos in a time of war. Davos is usually in January. It's cold there and snowy. I've been. Uh, but this year it's in May because of COVID. Um, apparently, according to the, the Washington Post, at least, in the shadow of war, there's no business as usual at Davos. Business as usual or no business as usual is always a, a kind of conceit, I think, of business leaders who always claim there's no business as usual, whatever that means. Um, the, the good and the great at Davos, the wealthy, in other words, uh, have always tried to do good as well or claim that they can do good. Uh, apparently this year they are calling on the global elite to tax them more. Uh, some people, though, don't believe that Davos is making the world a better place. Uh, we had Peter Goodman, the New York Times writer on the show, suggesting that Davos man is actually rather corrosive. This whole debate about whether capitalism can be good is ongoing. And my guest today on the show, Dove Seidman, he's an old friend. He's been on the show before when it was a TechCrunch show. He's the author of a wonderful book, How. It was a bestseller, was very influential. Um, and he's also uh, the founder of the How Institute for Society, a nonprofit dedicating, dedicated to figuring out, I think, how we can make ourselves better and how we can make society better. Dove is joining us from his new home in Florida. Dove, <laughs> looking as tanned and relaxed as I think I've ever seen him. Um, Dove, what is your message? I know you normally go to Davos. You're not there yet this year. Um, what's your message? What would your message be at Davos if you were there about squaring this circle of power and morality? Hmm. Well, it's good. Uh, uh, Andrew, we've had uh, many conversations over the years, and this is just another one of many and hopefully many more to come. It's nice to be with you. What would my message be? Um, you know, we're in a world of crisis. Uh, I'd start with this is a gathering of leaders and leadership is not about um, headlines. We know what they are and we follow them tweet to tweet. Leadership is about trend lines and pausing and stepping back and having some normative framework that allows us to think about the future. And frankly, with some humility and courage to pass judgment on the future and and try to head in that direction and have the skills of leadership to take people with you. And um, I think that the fundamental challenge of the 21st century is that we also have a crisis of authority. Uh, you and I both know that you can't run anything, Davos, a country, a company, uh, anything without formal authority. Somebody needs to be in charge or you get disorder and chaos. But I know that you know that you know that I know that the world really works when individuals with moral authority occupy positions of formal authority. And in this age of disruption, everything has been disrupted, including authority itself. Uh, and 
formal authority could be won in an election. It could be seized. Uh, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur could try to lock it up with 20 to 1 supermajority shares. Uh, but moral authority can only yeah, we be... We know we're talking about that, Dave, right? No, I know. We can mention some names if you want. But uh, moral authority has to be earned uh, by who you are, uh, how you lead, and how you foster cultures that are uh, rooted in, in shared human values, uh, where decisions are principled. And to the extent you build institutions, they really are serving others and not themselves. Um, so I think the, the single challenge of the 21st century is how do you build cultures of moral leaders, individuals who have moral authority, but how do you ensure that they are the ones with the levers of power in their hands? And if you step back, I think you'll see that autocracy and top-down command and control leadership, leading only with formal authority, um, is not really working anymore locally. I'm not seeing autocratic leaders run Fortune 500 companies or even college or professional football teams or soccer teams. Uh, very few mayors are behaving that way. Autocracy is really still trying to thrive in national politics. I wonder uh, if, um, if this crisis of autocracy, yeah, perhaps the last days of autocracy, um, that historians looking back at Putin's invasion of Ukraine might see this not as the high point of autocracy, but as the crisis, the, the twilight of autocracy. I think so. Well, in national politics, I think if you step back, the trend has been away from autocracy in most dimensions of life and in sectors of society. In national politics, you can still control a military. Uh, you can still uh, you know, promulgate propaganda and control the airwaves. So to the extent autocracy is still in some sort of battle, not an accident that it's playing out with Zelensky and Putin, uh, one autocrat and another who's in many ways the embodiment of courageous moral leadership. And I think we're seeing that play out in national uh, geopolitics. What has happened over the last two years? Uh, Doug, you and I haven't talked for a couple of years. We were catching up about what's happened in our own lives. Yeah. We're both still well and our families are well. You had an interesting piece in uh, Fortune um, in April, from April 2020, why the coronavirus crisis makes moral leadership more important right. than ever. You suggested, and I'm quoting you here, uh, the coronavirus pandemic has created a moral crisis in which we face profound dilemmas and painful trade-offs, even the ultimate trade-off between saving lives and returning to normalcy. How do you see the pandemic over the last couple of years playing out in moral terms? I know you, you know, you're right. a you're a man who has spent his life, dedicated his life to thinking about moral questions um, and moral solutions to right. social problems. I tend to think that most things uh, ultimately come down to uh, moral questions and to uh, ethics. But and the reason I wrote what you um, just read is what started as um, a health, you know, a, a tiny invisible pathogen started to encircle the world. And we saw it as a health crisis. And, and then it became a global health crisis and then a humanitarian crisis and then an economic crisis and an unemployment crisis. But it then quickly became a social media crisis as information 
and disinformation were amplified. So whatever fears we had or anxieties also got amplified. But then it also turned into a moral crisis because in a pandemic, when people are naturally scared and, and animated by fear uh, and worried and uncertain, they turn to those in charge uh, and they want truth and they want uh, bold action. They want to see a red state and a blue state mayor put differences, political differences aside and collaborate on their behalf. And basically what they were looking for when they are so vulnerable is for moral leadership, not just from our president, not just from the head of the CDC, but for the principal of their children's school, uh, the football coach in their high school, from a store manager. And we, what the pandemic really revealed is that leadership doesn't just matter, it matters exponentially more but it matters at every level, sector, and dimension. So are you suggesting that the pandemic, if you know, I'm using a, a rather loaded word here, democratized no. leadership? Well, I think leadership, uh, the possibility of leadership was always democratic. Uh, but, uh, in, and it, you know, leaders used to be born into power, into a monarchy or a high status family, or they were made. Somebody had to say, I hereby appoint you vice president. I think for a while now, we've been living in a world where leaders are self-made. They're announcing themselves earlier. We've seen teenagers speak truth to power, the Parkland uh, uh, teenagers. We've seen... Or, or but I wonder, Dove, whether there's a connection between the crisis of authority in traditional leader, political leaders in America. I think that's manifested both by the absurdity of Trump yeah but also by the feebleness of Biden. So on the one hand, our political leaders seem to be increasingly either just bombastic yeah. and ridiculous or pathetic, whereas we, as, 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 as owners of our own business, as members of a family, of friends, of part of network, we've stepped up or we're trying to step up to the plate. Is there some truth to this? Uh, I, I could not agree more that the political sphere, even with impunity, has created a vacuum of leadership that I think is being filled by at least the vanguard in business uh, and individuals. Uh, absolutely. But in many ways, since you went to the pandemic, the pandemic accelerated some unprecedented and unfamiliar forces that were already not just rapidly changing the world, but I think profoundly reshaping it. I mean, the world has gone from connected to interconnected to hyperconnected to interdependent, where the few or the, the tweet of just one can affect so many others so far away. And interdependence is a condition, it means we're going to rise or fall together globally so. Yeah, you put and, it beautifully in, in this fortune piece. Uh, you, you may not think like Marx, Dove, but you write like him. Um, you write, the pandemic is also accelerating a fusing of spheres of society. Yes. The economy and our personal lives that were once viewed and maintained as separate, um, given the central and permeating role business plays in all spheres, the imperative for moral leadership here is especially great. This idea of fusing of this fusing of spheres of society. Explain what you meant by that. Well, you know, the, I love movies, and I guess uh, The Godfather has been a management bible for so many, and this idea that it's not personal, it's just business. If it's just business or just politics, then my way or the highway or greed is good or too big to fail, or those are all just externalities. These are uh, rational strategies. But if the world is fused, if everything is personal, and if 
human concerns and flights and aspirations are brought to you in tiny screens in your hand, viscerally. And everything that was once crowded out, where a business person could say, my job is to run this business, and social, political, environmental, and human and ethical and moral issues are not in my sphere, then you get to lead and manage a certain way. But if the world uh, becomes uh, interdependent, if the world becomes fused, a word that I believe is apt, uh, then these issues now become part of your agenda. In many ways, the world has become normative. The ability to specify to others what you can and cannot do, and through carrots and sticks, just motivate people to run forward uh, towards success, just being mindful of what you can and cannot do, no longer works. We are in a normative environment because of this fusion, and where we have to be should or should not mind, should or should not mind it. I mean, the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said, there's a difference between doing that which one has a right to do and that which is right to do. Right, and, and as I you put it, uh, I, I, in, in this fused world, the business of business can no longer just be business. So in a way, you're articulating exactly what is being articulated at, um, at Davos this year. Uh, not just yeah. Texas now, but in the shadow of the war, there's no business as usual. But all this happy talk, um, right. Dove, how can we how can we make sure that the leaders, the wealthy, really deliver? In that book I was talking about, Peter S. Goodman's Davos yeah. Man, one of the, the people he really picks on as, and he's very critical uh, of Davos Man, is Mark Benioff, the CEO of, yeah. um, of Salesforce, a San Francisco-based billionaire, multi-billionaire. And he picks on him, uh, Goodman, because he says, Look, Benioff talks the talk. He talks about redistribution. He talks about the environment. He talks about, you know, we're not living in normal business times. And yet he gets even richer and the rest of us get even poorer. So he's not making, he's not suggesting that there's anything necessarily evil about um, about Benioff. But he is suggesting that events like Davos uh, mm-hmm. are ones in which people like Benioff celebrate all this new language and don't really change the world. How can we... How can we make sure that um, that Mark Benioff's feet are actually in the fire here? So I would, stepping back, I would bet that business pulls this off, but it's not linear. I mean, linearity is over in this fused world. It's, it's up and down. And I'll put it to you this way. Uh, let's look at the zeitgeist through the lens of language. There's a lot of transitional language, human capital management, social impact investing, conscious capitalism, responsible capitalism, moral capitalism. What are we saying? That before that it was uh, monster capital management, antisocial, but we're going into the very core of everything that we cherish and we're pulling out the moral core and we're fronting it. Uh, And in many ways, this what I call transitional language is pointing to where society wants to go. Either we're reconnecting with the moral core or building a bridge towards a more elevated way of being in the world. So we're in a transition. And I think this is the crux. We're always in uh, transition, though, David. I mean, that's the nature of life. But let it? me just put it to you in, in this way. There's uh, people behave in a way that uh, they can justify. And shareholder primacy, which is the manifesto of capitalism uh, that's really been extant for the last 40 years, under which 
uh, trillions of, of dollars of value have been created, many people out of poverty. And now we're starting to come to grips with the dehumanizing aspects of it, the fact that uh, we were in the just do it era. So if you can make something just in time, I mean, the pandemic has revealed that supply chains that were root, that were there to promote speed, just in time and efficiency are not standing up to this way in which the world has been reshaped. And we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and make our supply chains about resilience uh, and ethics. And where this is going is, Andrew, you and I both know that the best reason to do the right thing is that it's the right thing to do. And if you calculate your way to morality, it's still better because you're doing the right thing, even if not for the most enlightened reason. But you still have to celebrate somebody trying to get it right, even if they're using a spreadsheet or cost-benefit analysis. Is that your way to give the benefit of the doubt to the Benioffs of the world? You're suggesting we need to trust them? I think what I'm saying is the following. Uh, I still think that you have people trying to get it right, trying to be more mindful of all stakeholders, but they haven't yet developed and scaled the normative frameworks to build true human operating systems where people and their concerns and hopes and aspirations are really at the center. Because in the past, you had one king, it was the shareholder. And in this world of stakeholder capitalism, we have to ask, the following question, is it really just enlightened shareholder primacy? In other words, if we are more mindful of more stakeholders, in the end, shareholders will make more money. So everybody in the ecosystem is still a means to shareholder ends. So Dav, is this, you, you're, you, you talked about a mental framework. Are you suggesting that ultimately this is, um, this is about what happens in our head it's external to structures of capitalism. We need to change our thinking. I, I think that you cannot create shared value on any enduring basis without shared values, because in the end, and we're about to maybe go into a recession, I hope not, or I hope it's not a bad one, when there's not enough to go around, what is your framework for making tough decisions, for sharing burdens and sacrifices? It's one thing to say, let's be mindful of, uh, of, of all of our people and everybody, but we're now going to need to, and, and the reason I would bet on business, CRM, CSR, ERP, HRIS, all these acronyms stand for some systematic approach to some aspect of business, because business tries to do things at scale, which you have to admire. The question is, how do we do values-based operations and behavior at scale? And we need to build a normative framework for that. We don't yet have it. You're seeing attempts with ESG and uh, and other areas. Which, to do uh, that. There was a headline today about everyone now is claiming to be an ESG, and we're going to have to have government institutions seeing through every every corporation claims to be doing good in the world, right. and many of them, you know, from cigarette manufacturers to arms dealers. Right. Uh, there's an interesting debate. And it's, an, it's been a debate really for the last 200 years, Dov, between critics of capitalism like Tim Jackson. He's been on the show. He has a new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, which he thinks we can only become moral after capitalism. And then people like Ronnie Cohen, I'm sure you're familiar with his book and work, Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change. I'm assuming you're in the Cohen camp, that you believe that impact capitalism can indeed make the world a better place. Well, I also, I, 
Look, the father uh, of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, as you know, was the chairman of the moral philosophy department at Glasgow University. Instead of uh, capitalism 2.0, we can go back and do 1.0 uh, more properly and, and more deeply understand it. And I think in many ways, the capitalism uh, of the last 40 or so years has been a detour uh, away from the true roots of capitalism. And I think that if you step back and just contemplate the ways in which the world is working now, it's interdependence, it's fusion, where the business of business can no longer be just business. Uh, the fact that, listen, let me put this in a blunt way. If the only reason somebody works at a company is what they're paid, then they should go to another company that pays them more. If the only reason you buy a product from a company is the price, you should switch loyalty the minute it's undercut. In this friction-fused world where everybody is moving around, we need better ways to hang on to our customers, our colleagues, uh, and to the communities in which yeah, we there's work. A, there's a crisis, Dove, though, isn't there? Well, I mean, just, earlier let me just, today... Let me, let me finish this point. What's the best human glue? Andrew, you just got married because you and your bride share something very deep. And I think the secular world is now really using the best human glue ever invented. When people share hopes, when they share values, when they work in, uh, in respectful cultures, they stick together even when the going gets tough. And I think what you're seeing right now is that the world of business is starting to uh, latch on to the best human adhesion ever created, sharing deep things because we can't run a world based on just how much we pay people or interest. We've got to foster our environments based on shared truths and values and high trust. I take your point. Uh, earlier today, I did a conversation actually with Marcus Buckingham. I'm sure you know yeah. his work. Know um, he has a new book out, Love and Work. And we talked about yeah. how people should and can love their work. And we recognize that there is a, an issue today. People aren't loving their work. Right. We're living in a time of the great resignation. So for all this idealism about glue and sticking together, Dov, people are leaving work. They're leaving the wow. workforce. They're not happy in their corporations. What's happening and how can we make people happier? So I, I think ultimately the, the quest for freedom is one of our essential quests. And we tend to think that the great resignation is a freedom from problem. People want freedom from the cubicle, the office, or a, a micromanaging boss. Uh, I think that the freedom we really cherish is freedom to be yourself, uh, pursue a meaningful life. And I think we need to see the great resignation through the lens, not of freedom from who's just going to provide you flexibility from the office and see it as the pandemic has changed us in ways that we're still trying to sort out. But it's changed us in ways where we want more from our lives. We expect more. Uh, you know, I'm a 50 some year old millennial. I mean, I'm, you're probably laughing. Millennials did not invent our quest and search for meaning. Their contribution is that they insist on getting meaning where you get a paycheck. We all want meaning. And if we see millennialism not as a demographic, but a psychographic, I think what the pandemic has done and what the Great Resignation is really getting at is most people are pursuing some freedom to be near their loved ones, uh, pursue something uh, that they believe they were put on earth to do. And I think that the leaders and institutions that see it through that lens are going to create uh, environments that really respond to that. I think you're absolutely right. We had, a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, a, a UC Berkeley sociologist, I quote her work a lot. 
uh, Caroline Chen uh, on the show um, uh, earlier this year in March. She has a new book out, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. The subtitle, though, is a little... It it doesn't really explain the book. She suggests, and, and this makes a lot of sense, that because of the, and this will resonate with you very much, though, that um, because of the spiritual vacuum in society, people increasingly treating work as religion. It doesn't yeah. reflect badly on the Googles and the Amazons of the world. It simply right. means that when people don't have a church, when politics seems just so alienating, people look for meaning in work. Right. And I'm not sure whether that's a warning or an opportunity or both, but it certainly resonates with you, doesn't it? Very much. I mean, if in one sphere, the political sphere is the currency is power. Uh, the economic sphere or the capitalistic sphere, the currency is uh, materiality. And in those spheres, we try to accumulate uh, either power uh, or material. And if we can accumulate both, then we tend to rise to the top. But there's always been a third sphere that maybe it came from religion, maybe it came from some secular humanistic approach to being on the planet. But the, it's in the third sphere where we ask the deeper questions. What's, how do I forge meaning in my life? Um, if I were to have all this material good, how do I use it? How do I live? Where we ask the deeper questions. And I think that we still need to find a place uh, to engage in that third realm. But to come, but to come back to the... And I think the workplace is increasingly becoming... Right, but it, it's a paradox because we look to work for meaning. And yet ultimately, for better or worse, these companies are designed to make money. And for all this happy talk, all this yeah. business isn't as usual talk, the reality is they're all in the business of making money because that's what they are. Yeah. So do we need new kinds of institutions, Dove, somewhere kind of institutions that exist between churches and corporations? Well, the question is, even if they're in the business to make money, the question is, how are they going to make money? Because what is business? Business is human endeavor. And for humans to endeavor together to to provide a product or service in a marketplace, they still need an ethos and an ethic of endeavor. And what I'm saying is that the previous ethos and ethic of endeavor uh, is breaking apart. I mean, just think of Google telling the world, um, do no evil. They were celebrated for saying do no evil, but you can do no evil and still do lots of things that are short of evil. They're not exactly... Uh, yeah, I mean, some people, I mean, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a couple of years ago. Yeah. She would argue that Google is the heart of our new surveillance capitalism. So they are actually. Well, but think of what it, but they were celebrated. So they took a floor, do no evil, announced it, and they were the good guys. So I think we need to step back and see things are happening in the world that to compete in business, you're no longer going to be able to say, do no evil. You're going to have to really embody and manifest something really worthy and good. And um, the, the best formulation of this was when Johnson & Johnson went public, General Johnson wrote the J&J Credo, which I think is the most impressive capitalistic doctrine in one page ever written. And uh, he wanted to codify the values of the company. And it was capitalistic in the sense that he said, our first responsibilities to the doctors and patients and nurses of the world and the communities. It was basically a description of, we get out of bed to make the world a healthier place. 
And then it talked about money. And Andrew, it said, if we live according to these principles, our shareholders should make a fair return. Now think of that. He didn't say, if we do this, we will make more money. He said, let's do this and we will make more money. And I think that this is at the heart of business. It's one so thing to have our, so, so you believe we can indeed, so to speak, have our cake and eat it. Finally, Dave, I, think, I think it's a paradox. If you yeah. want to make money, you've got to do good in the world and create the possibility for money to find you. But the minute you do something in order to make money, it's just like the paradox of hedonism. If you pursue happiness, it eludes you. But if you passionately do something worthy and meaningful, happiness finds you. I believe the world has been reshaped in ways that if you do something to be number one or just to be successful or make a lot of money, they will all elude you. But if you do something to make a difference and create value in the lives of others and you have a good business model in so doing, then lots of money can find you. And in the pandemic, many and most pivoted towards saving lives and livelihoods. There was an ethos that business remarkably manifested quickly to really care for people and love and save lives. And the question is, are we gonna now go back to selling stuff or take that same ethos that we used to save lives and turn it towards serving and creating value in doing something valuable and good for others? Well, finally, Dove, you've started the Howe Institute for Society. Um, this all sounds very good. Perhaps we might end with a couple of very concrete steps. Yeah for making the world a better place. How are we going to make sure that the corporations, the businessmen of the future, the Davos elite actually behave themselves and give back to society rather than looting right. society? I'll, 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 let me say some two basic things. This, when I sit with executives, I, I ask them, tell me some of the behaviors that you would like to see in all of your teammates. And you know what I hear? Empathy humility, collaboration, authenticity, yeah, authenticity, name it. And then you know what I say to them? If you tripled everybody's salaries, would you get any more of that? You know, if you put a product on sale, I could get you to buy now and not later, more, not less. If you produce a great political attack ad, I could get you to vote right, not left or left, not right. We know how to nudge and shift people. We, with enough carrots and sticks, we can get anybody to work 10 hours and not eight. But all these behaviors that we now want are elevated behaviors. We want people to be human in our highest conception of what it means to be human, ethical, empathetic, thoughtful, loving, collaborative. And the only thing that's ever elevated another human being is a mission worthy of their loyalty. It is attachment to things. It is hope. And it's leaders that don't shift and manage you, but elevate you because we used to... Uh, um, we used to want others to just keep doing the next thing right. And a manager can get somebody to do the next thing right. But now that we want more people to do not the next thing right, but the next right thing, that's really an imperative for moral leadership because moral leaders are obsessed with how do we inspire and help others do not the next thing right, but the next right thing. And maybe I could end with the most practical thing that we can do today. Uh, I think you would agree that we're in an always on world. It's coming at us. We're being digitally assaulted. Uh, while we've been divided before, for the first time in our lives, we're being actively divided. Some people are making money pitting people against each other and uh, inhibiting their ability to see the full humanity in the others. And I think that the more that comes at you and the faster the world gets, the more important it is to pause. You know, Emerson said in the pause, we hear the call. If we don't pause, then when are we gonna reflect on 
the situation we're in or, or how the world is being reshaped? When are we going to reconnect uh, with our values or conscience? When are we going to rethink some of our assumptions about how we're treating people and operating? And when are we going to then reimagine a better path or a better solution? When are we going to ask an ethical question like, who am I avoiding in the hallways and why? what do I need to say to them to reconnect with them? Or what would it feel like if I were treated this way? So I actually think that the, however counterintuitive this sounds, uh, part of what we're doing at the Howe Institute is promoting the practice of pausing because without pausing, I, I think it's going to be hard to come together and do things together.